This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 156. Today on our show, Rick, Jordan, and Mark from the Cincinnati Watch Company. Uh, you know, who knows what she thought at that time? These two crazy guys talking about making a watch out of the Union Terminal clock. We had design drawings already, and we're like, you know, we want to we want to produce this watch. We want to donate a portion of the sale of this watch to, to support the museum center. They trusted us and, and rolled with it. These three fellows are passionate about watches, and for the past few years, they have produced some very fine Cincinnati-themed watches, and they sit down with us today to discuss their company, the history and future of watches, and a whole lot more about watches and clocks and timepieces and such. Our sales director, Billy DeVore, sits in on this interview as well, as he has become quite the watch collector as of late. Now, if you've been liking the podcast, you can help support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com and chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for that special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. And I just need to note real quick that uh, the audio is a little rubbish for the first minute and 30 seconds because I messed something up and Billy came to my rescue with a uh, better recording of the interview. But the first minute and 30 seconds, uh, I think I fixed it. But uh, if it sounds like not too too hot, uh, just wait for a minute and 30 seconds and then it, it, it'll be everything will be fine. Now let's talk to Rick, Jordan, and Mark from the Cincinnati Watch Company. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from Cincinnati. She came down Cincinnati. Just maybe think of me once in a while. I'm in Cincinnati. Like our, uh, the place we usually start is getting uh, everyone Cincinnati's bona fides out of the way. So are all three of you guys from Cincinnati originally, or did you just wind up here somehow? So um, this is Rick Bell speaking, and yes, I'm born and raised Cincinnati. And what high school? I went to Fairfield High School. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I know a couple of people went to Fairfield. And Jordan? I'm not from around here originally. I grew up in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Oh, wow. And I've been in the Cincinnati area since 2013. Ah, what brought you to uh, Cincinnati? Watches. Um, for the last few years, I've been working at the American Watchmakers and Clockmakers Institute out in Harrison, Ohio, helping watchmakers become better watchmakers and clockmakers become better clockmakers. And uh, recently, I've uh, gone out on my own for repair business and teamed up with uh, Rick and Mark at Cincinnati Watch to be a part of this wonderful company and uh, a part of the Cincinnati, for sure. And Mark? I didn't know that existed and that we had that in Cincinnati. We do. There is a library and a museum out in Harrison, Ohio. Um, It's the national headquarters for professional watchmakers and clockmakers. Wow, and it's not COVID. Um, they teach classes on a very regular basis out there, continuing education primarily for professional watchmakers out in the field. Wow, okay, we'll get back to that in a second. I just want to get Mark's uh, background. Uh, Cincinnati native. I've, I've, my family's been in Cincinnati for a very long time. We, my family, uh, many and many generations. We actually had a, a shop down on uh, Fountain Square around the same time that Gruen would have been located down there. 
we lived in over the Rhine back when it was filled with the Germans and moved out um, in Elmwood, St. Bernard, many generations in St. Bernard. We were a Roger Bacon family um, and many of us are still around and now, um, so yeah, I've been in Cincinnati for a very, very long time. My, my grandfather and even his grandfather worked at the Union Terminal. Um, they were um, uh, a master upholsters, the Union Terminal, and uh, worked all over worked all over town. So we're very tied into the success of Cincinnati. Oh, well, I've, I've so many questions. I hardly know where to begin. Um, so how do you all get, well, Mark, it makes sense for you how you kind of got interested in the watchmaking and clocks, but uh, what about Jordan and Rick? How did you guys uh, get, happen into this passion? Uh, so I, I guess I'll start, and this is Rick. Um, you know, watches, you know, I always kind of wore watches when I was younger, you know, and we're, we're talking about like the I, Timex Iron Man and, you know, th- those kind of the Casios and, and things and, uh, there was probably a brief period, probably 10 years or so that I didn't wear a watch at all between like 20 and 30. And then I kind of got, got back into watches. I'm 43 now, you know, about 12 years ago, 10 years ago, I can't pinpoint the exact moment about, but in and around the time I married my wife, I got kind of a, a nice watch and kind of got into mechanical watches. You know, I'm in technology, uh, is kind of my background, but something fascinated with me about the idea of time, time working on springs, gears, and levers only, you know, uh, versus everything we take for granted in the, in the digital and technical world today, you know, it's kind of like rejecting all that stuff that, you know, I've made a living on, but kind of going back to something more simpler. And then, you know, the more you dive down the rabbit hole and watches, the more you get, the more you learn about the history and the importance they played uh, in different professions, you know, these things were the apps of their time. You know, we all carry a cell phone around, but back in the day, if you were a pilot or a sailor or a race car driver, you know, there were so many different professions that watches played an important role and an important role in history. So, you know, you get into the the technical fun stuff and the movements, and then you get into the history of the things, and then eventually you you fall in love, and and you probably spend a lot more money than you should at a certain <laughs> point. <laughs> and that's that that's that's kind of the short the short story for me. I'll let I'll let Jordan go. Well, my story is probably not that short. So I've I've always worn watches my whole life. Like Rick, you know, my first watches were. Casios and Timexes and this kind of stuff from the time I was six years old, probably I've had a watch on my wrist. And I remember that in my dad's office, um, he had a stopwatch in his desk drawer and it was different from everything else. Right. I had the digital watches. It was the 1980s. Right. That's what we all wore. It was cool. Um, and it was different because when you'd started, it would go ticka, 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 ticka. You know, it, it, it was a mechanical device. You wound it up. It was really different. And and I guess I always was intrigued by it and played with it when I was at his desk, but there was no history of watchmaking in my family or even watch lobbying in my family. Um, they were tools. And so I never thought anything of it. It wasn't until years later um, when I was in South America and I got mugged um, and they took the watch right off my wrist 
And I went looking for something to replace it. And I decided I wanted something that would go in my pocket. And then I ended up buying an old lone jeans pocket watch to wear for the rest of my time down there that I kind of fell in love with them as mechanical devices. And when I came back to the States, um, I was in college and I got a job in a jewelry store. And then I realized there were careers in watches. And so as I graduated from college, I went on to trade school and I learned the art of watchmaking. And so I've been working on watches and in the watch industry ever since. Um, and it's been a lot of fun. There isn't a day I wake up that I know I'm gonna get to sit at the bench and fix watches that I dread going to work. I love it. I love every minute of it. And how about you, Mark? Were you instantly attracted to the industry as long as you could remember, or did it kind of take some time, as it were, for you to uh, kind of grow into it? No, I got to say, so Rick Bell, my good buddy, we've known each other for many years, and he called me up at midnight, and Rick just gets so into things, and that's why we love him. And he just calls me up at midnight, and he's like, oh, my God, I've been taking – you know, I've been I've been really getting into watch. I've been taking apart. So Rick called me up at midnight one night, and he is just taking apart watches. And he and I know he's been into them for some time, but he was just really excited about it. And um, he said, "You'll never believe this. I I got online, and you know I've been taking apart watches. I got online to see if if there's anything out there. To, I should be able to buy a kit, right? A kit that has everything you need to build your own watch. And there's nothing out there, nothing." And that was at midnight. By one o'clock, we bought the URL buildyourownwatch.com. A uh, little backstory: I, I run a digital marketing company, the Langley Group, and we help businesses grow. And Rick says we got to we got to take advantage of this. We have to put together a kit for a build your own watch kit and put everything in there that someone could build their own watch. And at, at the end of that phone call, we own buildyourownwatch.com and had set our course. And in that same call. We talked about uh, building a uh, doing a watch of the Union Terminal um, watch in that original call on that night. But so prior prior to that, um, so that literally opened my eyes to two two watches. Um, I, I I really appreciate the energy, the spring energy, and what can be done with it, and the like autonomons and different creations that can come out of of watch mechanics and mechanical watch mechanics. But it was Rick Bell's um, um, passion, and he have that that inspired me. I came on to support him and and what he does with uh, with watches and and his passion. And now with him and Jordan on the team, and I'm I'm the support mechanism of the company. I'm happy to say I'm still I'm still an advocate to the uninitiated. <laughs> <laughs> and how many people work for the company now? Is it just you three, or do you is there? Are there more employees? There's three of us, and then my team has two support employees uh, that are behind the scenes. So Rob Wheel and Matt Murtoff are behind the scenes and help with the digital and um, and some of our communications. Okay, and so what is the uh, do you guys? I know you guys. We we did the shirts for some of the, your designs. Um, is most of the time spent. Uh, designing watches or is it do you still make the kits for build your own watch or what's the focus of the business mostly these days yeah that probably warrants a backstory so you know build your own watch predates cincinnati watch company that's really you know that's that's really when mark and i got into the watch business um you know 
what I was excited about that night is because once once I'd gone down the rabbit hole far enough with watches, especially with mechanical ones, you know, I really wanted to touch them. I wanted to take them apart. I wanted to see what made them tick, quote unquote. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I went out and bought parts and it, it was confusing. And, you know, this is, you know, I'm. I'm probably apt technically with small parts. Some of my background is in um, networking technologies. I'm, I'm kind of actually in advertising technology now too, but um, my background was in, in networking technologies, which requires you to work with a lot of small wires and parts. And then I did automation type systems for homes and those kinds of things in my past background. So I was used to working with tools and small things and um, you know that just came natural to me. So. I, I wanted to buy a mechanical movement, a case, a dial, some hands, and I wanted to put the thing together. And and in that desire to do so, I realized that it took a lot more effort than I thought, just from the sense of what tools do I need? What parts do I need? Will this hand fit this movement? Will the, will the movement fit on the dial that I want? Will it fit into the case? And you know, it took me a solid month of buying tools and, you know, I'd get so far along in the build and realize I didn't have this certain tool I needed. And I was just like, this is a pain in the brain. But at the end, I built a watch and it worked. A hand-wound watch with an ETA 6498 movement, I believe it was. Um, and it worked on my first try. And I was like, once you know a little bit, the assembly part, which is really the easy part, quote unquote, easy part of watchmaking. I mean, you know, <laughs> there's definitely higher levels of watchmaking when you, and Jordan can talk about that, but just putting the watch together on a basic level, I thought other enthusiasts would want that experience at home um, and wouldn't want to go through the mess. So Mark and I created Build Your Own Watch and that allowed people to buy everything you needed, including the tools that you would need, and then watch me sharing a video of myself doing it in my way of doing it, which right or wrong was my way of doing it. <laughs> um, the watches seemed to work. So, you know, it, 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 it was a successful venture in the sense that we sold a lot of those kits, but ultimately it turned into, you know, what we really wanted to do, which is what you see now is the Cincinnati Watch Company, which is a watch that you buy, it's built, it's assembled now by someone who's much more proficient than me, Jordan. <laughs> um, but, and, you know, has those Cincinnati ties and, and gives back a little bit to charity, but that I'm diving off further into the story. But, you know, our, our beginnings were Build Your Own Watch with me and Mark. And I think where we're growing is, is more into Cincinnati Watch Company. And maybe someday Build Your Own Watch will come back. But it's it's too much at this point for three people and sometimes two extras to handle both brands at the moment. Right. Did you also have trouble finding ex the exact pieces and everything you needed and then also putting it into a kit and making it, you know, somewhat profitable and worth your guys' time? Or was it more of, you know, just a fruitless endeavor? No, I mean, we 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 went out and found um, manufacturing partners to make custom pieces. I mean, everything that we developed it intentionally fit together. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, you, you, you can get movements, you know, there's all kinds of movements that you can buy from Switzerland and Japan that are all reliable, great movements. 
and and we we put together a kit that was designed to go to get, go together. Absolutely. You still have that first watch you made? Interestingly enough, <laughs> and I'm kind of upset at myself about this. I sold it. Oh my goodness! <laughs> really? But to but to a friend, to a friend that that is not getting rid of it. So she she'll let me see it, and maybe will even sell it back to me one day. Um, I could make another one if I wanted because I know exactly where I got all those parts. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but uh, you know she she wanted it. Uh, so I sold it to her and, and, you know, actually there's, there's a lady out there that has the first watch I put together, uh, and she still wears it to this day and it still works as far as I can tell. Oh, nice. (laughs) So we were talking about how you said these were the watches were the, you know, the apps of their, their time. So how far back in history do we see like what we would consider the first sort of modern clock and or watch like mechanical timekeeping device? I think that's a Jordan one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the first clocks as we know them with a face and a hand that turns around goes back to about the 14th century. This was a public clock, you know, in a square um, with one hand that if you were lucky told you what the right hour was of the day. (laughs) Okay. And they had to invent these conventions. Um, We didn't get watches that you could carry around that consistently told good time until about 400 years ago. Uh, but for the last 300 years, the technology for mechanical watches hasn't changed a whole lot. Um, they've pretty much had figured out how to make a good portable timekeeper. Um, it's gotten smaller. The materials have improved. The precision and manufacturing has improved. Lots of improvements have been made away, but been, been made along the way. But the machine is basically the same, right? And it was always, like Rick said, I mean. People had watches for purposes, right? Of course, there's always been the prestige of the king or queen or, or whoever, the, the lords and ladies and all these people wanting to have the fanciest with gold and diamonds and all this kind of stuff. But that was born out of a need. And so watches were there to help manufacturing processes to figure out who was making what and how fast they were making it and how much you need to pay them and when they needed to show up for work and when they needed to pray and all these different kinds of things. Um, and so it's it's always just been uh, a useful tool. Um, and depending on what your industry was, you needed it to do different things besides just tell the time. And that's where all these neat, different complications and designs and watches come from um, are the different needs of different industries. You mentioned, too, that uh, I was noticing as you were talking that you know it's, it was also like a centerpiece for entire communities. And to, really up into the 20th century, you know, the, the town square has probably some clock tower in it. Uh, the college my mom taught at that was built in the 70s. The main is their logo is the clock tower right in the courtyard of the university. So it has, does have quite a history. Absolutely. I mean, from the early days when the church was the center of society and they needed to let you know when to pray and they had bells, well, eventually... The priest doesn't want to ring the bells. He wants a machine to ring the bells for him, right? And so you get a clock that rings the bells. And then when it became, you know, the Industrial Revolution and it was what time do I need to be at work and what time do I need to be home from work? Well, you need to standardize. So you put a big clock in the middle of town and everyone can refer to it and its bells to know when they need to be where at what time. 
and that kind of stuff. And then ultimately, as watches got small, they weren't very accurate. And so you woke up in the morning, you set it to that clock, and then you carried it around all day, and the next day you set it again because it wasn't super accurate. Um, now, you know, we make very accurate small timekeepers, but in the beginning, you needed some kind of a centralized timekeeping device, and it was something like a public clock. So that leads me to my next question. How long, for a modern timepiece, how long will a wound watch or clock keep time before it has to be reset? I haven't owned a watch in years, so I don't really remember. So uh, most mechanical watches on the market will run for about two days before they come to a stop. They're really designed for you to wind them each morning when you wake up. And then oh. they're good for all day. Wind them up the next day, you're good. And if you're off by half a day or whatever, you still can, it's still running, you can still wind it. But there are um, watches out there that will go five days or seven days or even 31 days. Um, but that's a very specialized and expensive timepiece um, that's capable of doing all of that. Most of them are 48 to 72 hours you get from some of the brands. And of course, it's all mechanics. It's not, it's, there's no, uh, battery involved, a wound watch is just, just mechanical. It's all mechanics. Either you turn the crown and you're coiling up a spring that's going to slowly release its energy to keep it running, or there is a, a weight inside the watch that swings around as you move, and that then winds up the spring. You know, that's an automatic or self-winding watch. And so you don't have to wind that each morning. If you wear it every day, it just keeps running perpetually. As long as you're wearing it, it's going to keep running because it's capturing the motion of your body to wind up that spring. Oh. Um, I forgot what my next question was uh, tailing off of that um, as far as the wound watch. Oh, how many uh, pieces, individual pieces, are in uh, a modern watch that you would build or you see coming through for repair? Like when you guys had these kits, how many different pieces are we talking were coming in this kit? So the kits that Build Your Own Watch did, um, the works of the watch, the movement itself was already assembled. So they had to put dial on hands, and case together, right? A watch movement in pieces from the factory, um, time only manual line watch is gonna have somewhere between 75 and 100 individual pieces. An automatic watch is typically 150 to 200 pieces. A chronograph is probably 250 to 300 pieces. Um, so as I'm servicing a watch, preparing a watch, I'm taking it apart down into its component pieces, cleaning everything individually, putting it back together. Now, we order for our watches at Cincinnati Watch Company um, movements from factories either in Switzerland or Japan. And those movements come already assembled from the factory as well. And so then we're assembling the rest of the watch here in Cincinnati, putting on the dial hands case that we designed and had built um, so that it's all put together. And then we do, of course, the quality control check. We want to make sure that it's water resistant so that it doesn't get moisture inside of it. We want to make sure that it's keeping good time uh, before it goes out the door to the hands of the customer. And how did Build Your Own Watch become Cincinnati Watch? How does it? How did the transformation take place? I think that was, you know, after after we'd run the company for a few years, we started in 2016. Um, you know, Mark and I had continually, just like that first conversation, talked about the idea of the Union Terminal clock being a watch. And, and you know, we didn't conceive that as like a, a kit, really, that someone would put together. 
themselves, we conceived it as this is a, a finished product, a, a watch you buy just like you would any other watch with a warranty already assembled and, and you know, ready to wear. Um, and at that point, I emailed the Cincinnati Museum Center a lot until <laughs> finally someone responded. And I found my way uh, into uh, the office of Elizabeth Pierce, the oh, yeah. Cincinnati Museum's, yeah. yep, the Cincinnati Museum Center president. Uh, you know, who knows what she thought at that time? These two crazy guys talking about making a watch out of the Union Terminal clock. We had design drawings already, and we're like, you know, we want to, we want to produce this watch. We want to donate a portion of the sale of this watch to to support the museum center. And you know, they they trusted us and and rolled with it. So we we. Um, we decided to produce that watch, and that really was the beginning of, you know, the Cincinnati Watch Company. Uh, that very first hand-wound, limited edition Union Terminal watch, which was received so well by the city. I mean, we sold out of those in probably four months or five months. I think, you know, it, it was really fast, and it was it was great, and um, and that really kind of created the model for us. You know, if if I'm going to spend my time away from family, my nights and weekends, you know, working on this, um, you know, because I, I I work during the day, you know, I I I work in in the technology world um, during the day. I'm I'm spending every night and every weekend thinking about watches, packing watches, shipping watches, designing watches, doing all these things to run the business, responding to emails. If I'm going to spend that time doing that, I wanted this kind of passion to do something better than just make some money. I wanted to be sure that, you know, Cincinnati Watch Company was some kind of not. It was like it's a legacy to for me to, you know, to contribute back to society. So that kind of made our model at that point, you know. Every watch we make is going to support some kind of charity, and a portion of the sale is going to go to, you know, usually a Cincinnati charity. But we've we've veered course to to charities outside of the region. But you know, we'll focus on that when possible. And I think I should. I feel I should know the answer to this question because I uploaded the T-shirt designs. But how many different designs are there currently offered by Cincinnati Watch Company? Uh, we have eight. Well, really, three three models. Um, but eight variations of said said models at the moment. And there's been other models that have sold out that are no longer available. Okay. And what are the current ones that are available? So we have the Cincinnati Field Watch with a portion of the sale going to the uh, Free Store Food Bank. Um, we have the Time Hill Collection with Benefits Union Terminal. Uh, that Time Hill Collection has a Union Terminal version, which is our Union Terminal V2 and a few other designs in it that also benefit the museum center. And then we have the uh, divers edition watch, which uh, supports the dive pirates foundation. Uh, they're based out of Houston, really interesting organization. You know, it's kind of hard to come up with a dive watch that relates to Cincinnati, <laughs> you know? Um, so, uh, you know, that, that was actually as fun as designing the watch, just figuring out, you know, what is this watch going to benefit? 
and, and after struggling to find any association in Cincinnati, I just took to the internet and was like, what, what cool organization is out there? There's probably plenty of them that, you know, we could give some money to uh, from this watch. And I found the Dive Pirates for organization and uh, they're based out of Houston. And essentially they take, you know, individuals, many of them are, are veterans that have lost a limb or, you know, basically people with mobility issues. And they take them on dive trips into the Bahamas, 100% uh, paid. Uh, and they bring along specialized divers with them, adaptive scuba divers with them to give these, these individuals an experience of like weightlessness in the ocean, freedom of movement that they don't get in their normal daily lives. So that watch uh, benefits that organization, which is, which is really cool. So um, half the fun for me is designing the watch. The other half of the fun is figuring out who we're going to help with it. I just can't believe there isn't a group of people that want to dive to the bottom of the Ohio river every other weekend. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it sounds like a trip. <laughs> we could call it the dirty river diver. And, you know, you're guaranteed to get sick. There, here you go. It's got a muddy Brown NATO strap. <laughs> they call it the big muddy. Uh, yeah. A la Paula Doherty. Yeah. Um, so do you have a long list of designs that you would like to execute at some point? Or is it in just, you know, kind of refining what you have? Because off the top of my head, I would think like the most famous clock face I can think of in town beyond Union Terminal is the old uh, scoreboard from Crosley Field. I have had that request actually in our inbox many times. I mean, you know, we don't have a particular set. You know, it's... It's inspiration just comes almost randomly uh, to me. So when I'm thinking of a watch, eventually I'll come up with an idea and then, you know, we'll roll with it. Up, up until this point, the designs have kind of been 75% me, 25% Mark telling me I'm crazy or <laughs> making suggestions. Like and, then, <laughs> and then Jordan's and then, scratching his head like, oh, I got to make that. Well, now, now, now I actually have Jordan, you know, collaborating with me, which has been great, you know, too. So, um, you know, future designs are, are definitely collaborations uh, with myself and Jordan and, and Mark, you know, all together. Um, and part of it goes back to the organization we're trying to benefit, or maybe we have a design first and try to figure out how we're fitting that into the line and, and who, who that's going to work with. And how complicated can your watches get? And I've, I believe I've seen, you know, they have the, the, the main face and they have, you know, there's, then you have the calendar and then sometimes they have the other little dials and I don't even know what they are, but like how, how ambitious do you guys reckon you're going to get? Um, I think so, you know, we're not going to produce movements here. We're not going to design movements. Um, as far as I, Jordan, correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I know, there's not a single mechanical movement made in the United States. Uh, there's some quartz movements maybe sort of made here, but no mechanical ones that are wholly made in the United States. That is an expensive venture to get into. Nothing that's mass produced. There are yeah. some individuals making very limited um, bespoke timepieces that cost tens of thousands of dollars yeah. um, with movements made in the U.S. You know. So... Yeah, so my limitation, our limitation on how complicated is what we can get 
available uh, okay. from Switzerland or Japan, mm -hmm. which could be somewhat complicated. But as, as far as how complicated to get is how much do we want to charge? You know, I mean, if we did something that was incredibly complicated from a mechanical side, you know, we could be in the $2,000, $3,000 territory, and that's a decision. Do we want to be in that territory? You know, most of our watches are sub $700, $600 pieces, at least up to this point. Which is one thing that I appreciate as a guy who has started collecting watches recently. Same camp, my wife got me a watch and... I'm a huge James Bond fan, and she got me a Seiko because that's what Roger Moore wore, who is my favorite James Bond. And so I've started collecting Seikos, and what's so nice is they aren't three, four grand unless you're getting like a grand Seiko. But I appreciate that you it's not you make you make watches that are available readily monetarily to the everyman, and that's something that I I I, I would pride myself on if I were you guys. I think that definitely has been a part of the of the design process up till now is that we want our watches to appeal not just to watch people, but to the general public as well, especially to people who have Cincinnati ties, right, being the Cincinnati watch company. And so we've tried to keep our watches where, as you said, they're attainable to a guy who isn't buying watches every day, who isn't totally in them, right? They're going to buy one watch and wear it. And their idea of an expensive watch is $300, $400, $500. Right. Um, and so we, we tried to make that a part of our mission while still being able to give back to the community. Right. We're not ever going to have a $59 watch because there would be no way for us to give anything to back to the community. And that's one of the key fundamentals of what we're doing here is we're supporting community organizations as well. Um, two things I want to jump in and say here. Uh, backtrack a little bit here. Sure. Rick Rick had said that it's 50% of the fun is designing the watch and 50% of the fun is working with the or finding the organizations and working with them. I think that answers the question as to how they got from build your own watch to Cincinnati Watch Company. Logistics wasn't part of the fun. And when you're doing build your own watch, there is a ton of logistics involved in the people ordering, oh, I want this and this and this and this, and you having to package it and get it out there. Um, we're still building our own watches, the stuff we like, the stuff that inspires us. We still get to do all those fun parts. And the logistics is much easier, shall we say, delivering a finished product um, out to, to the public. Um, and then as far as design ideas go, I mean, like Rick said, we don't have a list, but there's, I think we all have ideas in the back of our head always going on. We're always working on the next thing. Right. And, we're going to have a couple of new, completely new designs coming out this next year, and which we're not ready to uh, un unveil yet. I don't think, are we, Rick? But uh, <laughs> no, I don't think so. But you know, yeah, but they're coming. They're coming. Yeah, they're, there, are, there are always ideas working. We're always working on the next thing. Yeah, and Billy, I just wanted to let you know it's it's a slippery slope. This uh, two hundred, three hundred dollar watch soon becomes <laughs> it. It gets it. It gets into your head, and then at a certain point, you know, a five thousand dollar watch seems real cheap. You know, so just just so you know. <laughs> oh, oh, you know, it's already happened. I went in and I I was looking at a, a Seiko, and then uh, I leaned over and I saw the new James Bond Omega watch, and I was like, well. Nine grand's not that crazy, huh? And then I'm like, no, it is. No, it is. It's definitely crazy. Walk away. Leave. Not crazy at all. Not crazy at all. Not crazy. 
That's what we tell ourselves every day. <laughs> uh, Jordan, you were mentioning when you were in South America, you, you opted for a pocket watch. And I'm thinking, you, you guys think you'll branch into something like that or even small clocks for that matter? Or is it just, is it watches really the, the thing and the passion right now? Well, I mean, we have to design things that appeal to us. It's not any fun to design something that we don't find attractive ourselves. But we also have to design something that we can produce in a volume that makes it make sense so that we can make a little money doing it and give back to the community. I don't see a huge demand for pocket watches such that we would be able to design a pocket watch that we enjoyed and have enough people interested in it that we would um, be able to produce it. So right now, I don't see a pocket watch in our near future. Maybe Rick and Mark think differently, but I don't think so. But I do think we'll be seeing um, more complicated and exciting and different wristwatches, certainly in, in our future. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the pocket watch, it, it would be tough. And, and there's just so many pocket watches out there already. I mean, you know, with with all the producers, you know, before the, the, the watch industry left the United States, more or less, um, you know, almost everybody has a has a has a pocket watch in the family that's a Waltham or a Hamilton or you know, a lot of people do. You know, I, I this this winter. My dad handed me a pocket watch I didn't even know he had. And, and Jordan's, re, you know, Jordan's restoring it right now. Um, but, you know, there were so many pocket watches produced in the United States that I think if, if I'm out there and I'm interested in a pocket watch, I would get an old one and get someone like Jordan just to fix it oh. versus someone buying a new one because they're just not made that way anymore. Um, yeah. I would add to that that, I mean, I like pocket watches. I have four or five of them myself, um, but they're all old pocket watches, things that I've restored. But what I like in pocket watches is it would be very expensive to make today. Mm. So whatever you're looking for in a pocket watch, you can probably get in a vintage watch and have it restored cheaper than we could produce it today. Now, okay. when did we shift? Like, when did the shift happen from pocket watches to more of your regular wrist timepiece when did that time change so uh, i'm going to answer part of that first it was in 2007 we came out with the iphone and everybody <laughs> took watches off their wrist and they put phones in their pockets and then later they came out with the smart watches <laughs> because apple <laughs> apple took a hundred years of watchmaking technology and took it off our wrist and put it right back in our pocket and said well i don't need a watch because i got this phone in my pocket you mean just like when people used to put pocket watches in their pocket <laughs> you have one of them <laughs> but in reality in reality what jordan i would say is early 1900s right before before wristwatches got accurate enough to be reasonable timekeepers. Rolex had a big part of that story, but early 1900s, wouldn't you say, is when it began? It, yeah. It, it, I said before that watches are tools. They come out of the needs. And the need that generated the wristwatch was war. Hmm. 
That makes sense. Right? Yeah. Coordination of logistical efforts during war while holding a gun and pointing it at someone meant you couldn't dig into your pocket for the time. So it was World War One when people started strapping watches on their wrists. And before that, yes, there were ladies. There were some ladies' timepieces. They were wearing them on their wrists. But men did not wear wristwatches until World War One. Then they came home from the war realizing how convenient it was to have it on their wrist. And brands started producing watches that were intended to go on the wrist. So we see it 19-teens, 1920s, uh, the wristwatch becomes super popular um, among men. Now, here in the U.S., we continued producing tons of pocket watches up to World War II. Hmm. Um, because we weren't smart enough to retool our factories and put our focus on wristwatches. Now, was huh. it the British that first issued watches to their troops? Am I, am I correct on that one? Or was that... That's a bit of history I don't know the answer to. Ah. <laughs> That'd be a German I, thing. I, I do know that Cartier um, claims the first mass-produced wristwatch. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, back to my other question about uh, clocks, because, you know, the, for whatever reason, maybe people still aren't on board with getting back into wristwatches, or, you know, maybe they like to enjoy that union terminal design in their home to, to, for everyone to enjoy it. Is that anything that's... Did, it's uh, on the board for you guys, or? Uh, We've talked about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like PF just struck a nerve here. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> what you do have to realize is, you know, that is a different, that is a whole different aptitude. You know, I mean, not, not that that's not impossible, but we're going to, for us to do something like that, we're looking at new different suppliers. I mean, it's, 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 that's a different world. Um, so it's, it's something that we love the idea of. It's like practically can, can we really do it economically or not? I don't know. I guess the answer to that is maybe. Well, I mean, Maybe someday. I, I just don't see you going to your suppliers and be like, hey, can you just like make this but bigger? Like, I just don't see that. <laughs> I don't see that making sense. Well, you could say that. They'll say no. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I face the same thing all the time on the repair side of the business, right? Is people want me to fix their clocks. I'm not a clockmaker. Right. I don't do clocks, right? I only do watches because it takes a completely different set of tools. It takes a different, completely different size Workshops that workshop, I mean, fundamentally, the machines are the same, right? They run on the same basic principles, but the scale is makes it surprisingly different. Hmm. I mean, and so it's the same sort of thing on the manufacturing side. Watches and clocks are quite different from each other. And so our expertise is in the watch side. And so until we're able to expand and and reach somebody who's got that expertise, it'll just be watches probably. So you're telling me a thing that goes on my wrist is different than a six-foot-tall thing that can go in my living room? <laughs> the, the guy who fixes the engine in your car doesn't fix the engine in an oil tanker. <laughs> there you go. That's, there it is. that's the difference in scale we're talking about here. Right, that's kind of what I figured. That's a fair play. So what is the watch industry looking like going forward? Because we were kind of having this discussion in our staff meeting this morning how people seem to be longing 
for you know uh, a simpler time and things that remind them of a simpler time. I think a wristwatch would would fit into that. Certainly, that reminds me of a younger me. I always wore a wristwatch up until you know I got a phone. And uh, although I would say that when I was uploading the designs of your shirts, I was thinking maybe I should get back into a wristwatch. So there's hope. Uh, but so what, <laughs> what do you think overall the, the, the trajectory of the business is looking like? Is is it healthy? Is it growing? Or is this kind of a, a niche thing? Or I mean, I think. One, overall, the industry has seen an explosion. Watches, especially mechanical, have become incredibly popular um, in certain circles. But just overall, I mean, there's been media organizations that sprung up around them that have been juggernauts uh, like Hodinkee and a few other articles or publications that, that are around. It, they've become more mainstream, and maybe it is for people yearning for that like kind of simpler time uh, you know, back, you know, thinking back to pre-tech, I, I think there's a, a lean in towards that. For us, yes, surprisingly, we keep growing every year. And I say surprisingly just because I was a little nervous with uh, COVID that, that we might have some trouble. Um, but this year is better than last year. Um, and I don't have any reason to believe it isn't going to be better next year or this year than it was last year. So, uh, you know, we've been doing well and growing steadily, and I think the industry as a whole has been doing really well um, because of the Internet and because of connectivity between, you know, watch suppliers and, uh, you know, enthusiasts have been able to communicate and Instagram and Facebook and all these things have really exploded the watch world. Uh, I'm interested in Jordan's take on it, too. Um, but I, I think the industry at whole is doing pretty well. The industry in America is almost non-existent, but at, as a whole, it's it's doing well. Yeah, certainly the watch industry is growing. The luxury watch industry, especially, is growing. Um, and a lot of people wonder about smartwatches and cell phones and this kind of stuff. And despite all that, um, we see sales of watches increasing year after year. Um, if the smartwatch had an impact anywhere, it was in this arena where we're competing, in the under $500 watch. It has absolutely zero impact on the luxury watches, $5,000 and above. Nobody's taken the Rolex off their wrist and putting an Apple watch in its place. Right? That's not why they're wearing the Rolex. Um, but companies like ours and other micro brands is kind of the industry term we use there um, have not struggled at all um, to put watches in the market and be successful despite smartwatches. I would say for a younger generation, the smartwatch put something on their wrist for the first time and they discovered they liked it. And they often have replaced it or supplemented it with other watches because the watch is one way that guys especially can accessorize most guys aren't wearing necklaces bracelets earrings this kind of stuff right we're not using tie bars and tie tacks like we used to cufflinks in some jobs maybe but a watch is a way that you can share your personality and so there's a million different watches out there for a million different personalities for people to find something that speaks to them and then they become connected to it. And then they love it and they want another one. 
And so that segment of the industry continues to, to grow and do very well. And even in the US, there's not a lot of industry, especially if we're talking manufacturing for watches in the US, but we're seeing a lot more um, brand ownership coming to the US, a lot more interest in an American made or an American assembled product. Um, I think it certainly has helped us at Cincinnati Watch Company to be able to say that our product is assembled here in the US um, to push sales. People want that. And so slowly but surely we are seeing that kind of stuff come back to the US. And I have hopes that we will have a booming watch industry in the United States again, like we did at the turn of the last century, when we were the premier nation in the world for producing timepieces. So where's the watch industry mostly located now? Is Switzerland and Japan, like you were saying, where all the movements come from? Or are there other countries that are... Switzerland, Japan, Germany primarily are the three places that are making watches top to bottom, 100%. Quality watches. Yeah. I mean, the, the number one producer of watches in the world is India, but they're super inexpensive throwaway timepieces, gumball machine watches, if you will. But for the where you guys are competing, it's, it's uh, Japan, Germany, uh, Switzerland, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, my dad always likes to tell the story that it was because he was stationed in Japan right after World War II, um, like in the early 50s. And he said that the thing that the Japanese did with the two places, the two things they went after were watches and cameras. And they went and studied everything that the Germans and the Swiss knew about watches and cameras and copied them and eventually were very good at it and were able to, to compete. Is that accurate or is that just something that he... Which is, which is precisely what the Swiss did with America yep. to put themselves where they were for watchmaking technology. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, the Swiss, the Swiss had a burgeoning watch industry before the U.S. did, but it was a cottage industry hmm. where if you wanted to make a watch, all these guys farmed all summer long, and then it got snowy in the Alps, and they couldn't farm all winter long. So they literally went upstairs in their cottage, and they would take on watch jobs. So a watchmaker would say, to this guy, to a farmer, I need you to make a hundred center wheels for a watch for me. And he'd give him the design and all winter long, that guy would make a hundred center wheels. And then in the spring, he'd give them to the watchmaker and the watchmaker would collect those from all the different guys and he'd build watches out of them. Hmm. Every watch slightly different, lots of imperfections, all very manually done. In the US, we looked at the firearms industry and we said, hey, there's some standardization going on here. And we built gigantic factories to produce millions of identical watches. And so in say 1900, a watch of equal quality produced in the United States and in Switzerland would cost $4 in the US and $25 in Switzerland. Hmm. Just because of the amount of manual oh, yeah, yeah. work and labor that was going on in Switzerland versus the industrial assembly line processes developed in the United States. And so we started showing stuff off at the world's fairs and the Swiss started going, Hey, wait a minute. And they started sending people over to the U S to check out our factories, to buy manufacturing equipment here and take it back to Switzerland. Wow. Which, which doesn't even speak, which also speaks to the, the, the part of the industrial revolution that watches had Henry Ford visited Waltham masses production facilities 
to learn more about assembly line production. Waltham was like, Waltham Mass was like modern day, what's the city that Apple's in? Um, Cupertino. Yeah. I mean, working for Waltham was like working for Apple back then. I mean, they the people that worked there had like bowling alleys and uh, healthcare, all these progressive things. And Henry, people like Henry Ford came to see how they were doing these assembly line productions to, to figure out how to do cars. So we were we were forefront. I mean, going further back, the English made the best watches, but still the, the, the linchpin was that that was a watch individually made by one guy. So if that watch broke, another watchmaker had to make that part, like fabricate it 100% to fix that watch. Whereas an American watch early on with assembly line, we had the same parts. A watchmaker of average ability could take that watch apart and put it back together because the parts were meant to work together. And that was really America foundationally brought that concept into watchmaking. And and unfortunately it, it left the country. And, and even today, somebody can bring me a pocket watch it's American made from the early 1900s. And if it's got a worn out component, chances are pretty good. Somebody's got a brand new one in stock because they produced spare parts. It was all standardized. They have part numbers. Like this was all Brenton. This was all unheard of when the watch industry was born in the United States to think, you know, every center wheel is going to be exactly the same. It's going to be this part number and we're going to produce a thousand extra so that we fix them indefinitely right and so they're out there you know it might be a little bit of a search but chances are i can find it if i can't find a new one i can find another watch just like one that's got one in it that works i can't do that with a swiss watch from the same time period ah. it's just you can't so what do you do with a swiss watch from that time period do you have to fabricate the part or find someone that can make the part or that's exactly what you have to do wow 3d printed yeah it wasn't until they copied us and started the mass production kind of things that they could do that. And Japan did the same thing. After World War II, they had to rebuild everything in Japan, right? They're rebuilding their factories. And they went to the Swiss, who were the powerhouse at the time, and said, how do we do this kind of stuff? And today, it doesn't matter. I mean, Japan now does some of their own CNC machine production and that kind of stuff. But the most precise, we still look to Switzerland for precision CNC equipment. It's used all across the industry from China to India to Japan to, to the US, um, Swiss made CNC for precision applications um, or Japanese, there are some Japanese as well, but nobody's going looking for an India CNC to make their precision wash parts. Billy brings up a good point. Will 3D printing kind of be helpful in, in the future towards, you know, Especially if you're only making little tiny parts, will it be? You think it'll be able to make your job easier when someone brings you that 1900 Swiss watch and you can make the part? I believe there will be a day when yes, that will be the case. We're not there yet. Um, one of the biggest problems is the durability. You know, right now 3D printed metals, um, you can get them pretty. The precision is there if you can spend the money. Um, but I need my metals to be certain hardnesses. And if you're melting it and extruding it and it's cooling down, you're not able, you're not hardening and tempering the metal like it needs to be 
for to be durable in a watch. Gotcha. It's just just not the way the chemistry works. The metallurgy works. Um, but I think that's a problem they will figure out and overcome, or we might be able to produce them in a fashion where they can then be hardened and finishing done after the fact. I mean, when it comes to case components, bracelet links, this kind of stuff, yeah, I'm sure it's being done. And, and in all honesty, I hope that ta tech takes a long time because what I love about watches what people should love about watches is that that some person's hands got on it you know there's very few things in our lives that we buy anymore that a person's hands has to touch to make beautiful you know and especially when you talk about higher end luxury watches what you're paying for there is the amount of time the craftsman has spent individually working on that piece I'm sure a machine someday is going to be able to equal it or exceed it, but I'm not looking forward to that day no. at all. I, I, I'm the, the, what's great about watches all overall is that they're still back to that kind of somebody had to touch it to make it, to get it to work. And I hope that sticks around for a while. Cool. Well, this has been fascinating fellas. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, to go through all this with us. Um, uh, as one last order of business, I don't know if you've listened to the show before, but you guys get to pick a, a coupon code which folks can use to come to our website or our sister website, oldschoolshirts.com, and, and use it to take 20% off their T-shirt order. And it can be uh, one word or a short phrase that folks can use for the next week until the next episode drops. What, what would you like that phrase to be? Hmm. <laughs> Mark, why don't you come up with something? <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing I, I want to just take a moment to give a shout out to the Tri-State Warbird Museum while we're on a topic. Um, uh, they are one of our partners and it's a great place to visit, especially right now in the winter. Uh, they have restored World War II aircraft that blow the kids away. They're, they're quite amazing. Um, Where is it at? The, it's in Batavia. Tri-State Warbird oh, yeah, Museum. Yeah. They have and that's where, uh, real quick, uh, when Rick was designing the P40 mechanical, the the clocks and the warbirds are actually mechanical clocks. They're called eight-day clocks. And they the pilots wind them. And huh. they have a large barrel in there. So the eight-day clock inside of the P40 that the Tri-State Warbird Museum renovated, restored, uh, is what inspired our P40 mechanical. Um, so maybe let's make it, uh, let's make the short code Tri-State, or let's make it Warbird. 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 Uh, yeah. Warbird. Uh, that's cool. Perfect. And, uh, definitely visit the uh, Tri-State Warbird Museum. is awesome. We're lucky to have it here. That's right down the street from me here. So I'm going to check that out. Yeah, excellent. Cool. Great. Well, uh, thanks again, fellas, and continued success. And we'll hopefully sell lots of T-shirts, and you'll sell lots of watches. And uh, we look forward to the uh, the new designs coming out. What do you say, like, within the next year, you're thinking? Oh, I think you'll see something new from us in summer. Okay, great. We'll look yes. <laughs> All right. We'll look forward to great. Okay, well, thanks, fellas. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. A man came up to me and asked me what the time was that was on my watch. Yeah. I said, does anybody really know what time it is? Yeah. Can't
Rick Jordan and Mark from the Cincinnati Watch Company, and they really do know what time it is, and they really do care. So you can find them at CincinnatiWatch.com. Uh, that was really interesting. I'd really never thought about uh, watches in that way until they started pointing out uh, all those things about it being the center of the town and everybody having to be on the same time to know when to be at work. You know, without watches, you have no industrial revolution. Fascinating. Be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area but still feel connected to the tri-state. And if you haven't already, check out that Cincy Shirts podcast archive uh, from baseball great Johnny Bench all the way back to Amy Yazbeck. There's just tons and tons of great episodes in there. Today's show is produced by me with all from Josh, Darren, and Billy. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia. Still trying to get that guy on the show. I should uh, reach back out to him because uh, he's a guy from Philadelphia that wrote a song about Cincinnati, and I'm kind of curious to know if they toured here or something like that, but um, they've kind of let us use their song, so please go find their music on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. Uh, they've got a lot of great tunes, by the way, not just that one. Find vintage teas from great places like Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, Philadelphia, and more, up to like 32, 33 cities now at oldschoolshirts.com. Lots of defunct teams, uh, old malls, old restaurants, uh, old TV shows, old TV stations, all that kind of stuff. It's like Cincy shirts, but for those towns, of course. And again, the promo code for this episode is Warbirds, all one word, all lowercase, all uppercase. That part does not matter, and uh, we need to get those folks on the podcast. They sound really interesting. Use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order. And, uh, of course, you can use that in our brick-and-mortar stores there and over the Rhine when that reopens uh, shortly, and also in uh, Hyde Park. So, uh, And if you don't know, uh, over the Rhine, we're uh, remodeling it, and we're adding a little special surprise. I don't know if I'm supposed to reveal it, so I won't. But uh, look for that very soon. And in the meantime, use uh, Warbirds as the promo code for this week at Hyde Park, or like I said, the online stores works there. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest in C-Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye. I said goodbye. I wish I said goodbye.